Welcome to another episode of 10 Minute TechCom. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Weber from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And today I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Jeff Todd from Texas State University, San Marcos. And he's talking to us about his article in the latest issue of the Journal of Technical Writing and Communication about avoiding litigation for product instructions and warnings. So he'll tell us how to avoid lawsuits as a technical communicator. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jeff, and thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me today. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about first, in your article, you write that a technical communicator should think first and foremost about how to prevent exposing his or her employer to the time, expense, and uncertainty of trial. So to you, what does this mean, and then how can a technical communicator do this? You know, having been in both the technical communication world and then practicing law, mm-hmm. I see how complex the law is. Right? Mm-hmm. You have every state has laws. The federal system has laws. It takes three years of full-time graduate school, a bar exam, just to practice law. And so there's so much that's out there. There is an importance for technical communicators, especially those who are writing mm-hmm. product instructions and warnings, to get it right. Because the law is so complex, I thought, well, is there any way I could distill it down, just focus on the most important parts? And I realized, well, what do defense attorneys do? We look at what element can be defeated, because most product liability claims are tort claims, and those are elemental. And then when I teach students, uh, even my law students, I said, okay, if you're on the plaintiff side, you have to prove every element. If you're on the defense side, you just have to disprove one. Mm -hmm. So I thought that technical communication academics might also appreciate thinking like a defense attorney mm-hmm. also, right? Like instead of having to learn everything about the law, which is so huge, why not focus on one element? Get really good with that. And that could be the legal literacy, you know, that um, Hannah advocates. So the example would be negligence. That's the prime theory of tort law. Duty, breach, cause and fact, proximate cause and damages. Well, the one that's hardest for plaintiffs to prove is breach. So that's the one that technical communicators should be aware of. Mm-hmm. Show that they acted reasonably. Document meeting with people, document research, you know, just show that their behavior was reasonable and breach can be defeated. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that it's harder for a plaintiff in a way than for the defense to prove in these tort claims. It's more difficult because the plaintiffs have to prove all the elements and the company only has to disprove one. So that's absolutely right. Yeah. In fact, negligence has five elements. The plaintiff has the burden of proof and the burden of persuasion. That means Mm -hmm. they have to prove each of the five elements by a preponderance of the evidence. Mm-hmm. When if it's fraud, even higher standard than that. Can you describe real quickly those five points of negligence? Again, I know you mentioned them just a moment ago, but can you give them to us one more time? Yeah, sure. The negligence is the dominant theory of, of tort law because it can apply to any behavior that causes harm to person or property. And it's duty, breach of duty, cause and fact, proximate cause, and damages. Duty is a question of law. Everybody has a duty to behave reasonably, right? To do things that won't cause harm. But breach is the hardest one for plaintiffs to prove. They have to show that the defendant behaved unreasonably. So what can technical communicators do to make sure they don't breach a duty? Behave reasonably, you know, document research, show that they're following best practices, 
follow regulations or statutes or even industry custom for writing warnings and writing instructions. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned in your article that there are warnings to include and warnings to not include. So in other words, there's a duty to instruct and warn, but that doesn't cover every conceivable warning. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And this be for both negligence and the restatement. A lot of times, you know, if duty is a question of law, then it can dismiss a cause of action if there's no duty to warn or no duty to instruct. And so for products that have an obvious danger, I'm going to throw out a knife. Knives are sharp. You can cut yourself with a knife, right? But everyone knows that. That's why knives don't all say, caution, sharp, mm -hmm. you know, because people know this. And also uses and misuses. Now, some misuses are foreseeable. People stand on chairs to reach high places. Right. But a lot of misuses, like if you get to circumvent safety features to turn a product on, that's a fantastical misuse. So there's no duty to warn or to give instructions for obvious dangers or fantastical misuses. The point I want to make about that is if the technical communicator decides to give warnings and instructions about those, they're creating more opportunities for the warning to be inadequate. Mm -hmm. right? So if there's no duty to warn, or, do, or to instruct, then don't warn or instruct. Right. Leave that alone. Uh -huh. And I think that's a way of helping to reduce litigation is understand what's obvious and what's a fantastical misuse. And then that just comes down to rhetoric. You know, like, what would the reasonable person do in a certain situation? What kind of language is going to reach the target audience for this particular product and so forth? Great, great. And you mentioned this a moment ago, and you mentioned it in your article as well, is the third restatement. Mm -hmm. um, what is that, and then what do technical communicators need to know about it? Let me back up just a little bit. It's a basic history. Torts, contract, property law, these are all state law. You know, there's not like one big federal law, uh, you know, about these subjects. Mm -hmm. And so they're based on the common law or on cases, you know, published opinions. And so the law builds and develops over really the centuries based upon courts issuing opinions. So different states can have slightly different variants of the same kind of tort concept or contract concept. So what the American Law Institute decided to publish these restatements of the law to look at what are the most common concepts that most states seem to follow and then issue statements with commentary and even citations to, to support those. The restatement is not itself law, but a court can cite it and then it becomes the law of that state. And that's what most courts do. They'll cite the restatement and it becomes the law of that state. Got it. In the 1960s, the restatement second actually didn't really restate the law so much as created the law of strict liability for products. And strict liability works pretty well for a manufacturing defect. You know, if a spring is missing in one of thousand units, okay, that's fine. But for design, and for warnings and instructions, those are more conscious choices. Mm -hmm. So negligence is the more appropriate theory. In the 90s, the ALI provided for the third restatement of torts and products liability, specifically products liability. And that restatement is a functional approach. So instead of saying, well, it's strict or it's negligence or it's warranty, said, okay, let's look at the three main types of product defect, manufacturing, design, instructions, and warnings, and describe you know, what is adequate and what is inadequate. Courts, by and large, have adopted the third restatement, so I thought it was important to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important part of the restatement third is what we just talked about earlier, about whether there's a duty to warn and instruct. Because the restatement has several comments that talk about that, and I think that would be the, the biggest uh, takeaway. 
Good. And then are there any other actions, you know, getting back to your initial idea of helping to prevent a trial as a technical communicator? Are there any other actions that technical communicators can take to help avoid or defeat litigation involving their writing? Yeah, I think uh, two things to keep in mind. One would be while we typically think of product liability actions as torts, they can also sound in contract law. And so proving a contract case is very different. And when I say contract law, I'm thinking warranty. And so what's a warranty? A warranty is a promise. Okay. And so if product documentation contains statements of fact, and that can include just a description of the product, and that statement is false, and there's an injury that relates to that particular factor, then a product liability cause of action can go through contract. And the reason why that's important is every once in a while, the tort claim might fail, but the contract could succeed. And that could uh, you know, subject the d- defendant, the company, to years of litigation, costs, and so forth. The other thing I would just say is I kind of gave four factors in the article on page 416. Okay. And I think if you could follow these, you know, in addition to any kind of rhetorical training, tech writing education that they have, these will be good. So don't instruct about obvious risks or unreasonable uses and misuses. Picture rhetorically sound theories for writing product documentation and record that adherence. Comply with relevant and applicable statutes and government regulations as well as industry custom. And then ensure that the product documentation makes no affirmative promises or representations of fact that are false. Okay. I mean, those are kind of common sense. But I think what I really wanted to do is just emphasize that by following some of these basic concepts, that technical interest can help their employer avoid being sued. And if they are sued, to then prevail in the lawsuit. Great, great. And then one last quick thing. You've mentioned a couple of times the issue of documenting Mm-hmm. your reasonableness. And I like that's also, you know, sort of a tech writing concern. But what kinds of legally acceptable ways are there for me to document that I'm behaving in a reasonable fashion or, you know, adhering to the law or, you know, doing due diligence to, to something? In litigation, once you get into the discovery phase, the idea is wide open discovery. Meaning uh-huh. almost anything can be discovered if it's in control of one of the parties. My view is, you know, if you're sending emails, if you're keeping a log, if you're mm-hmm. doing, you know, keeping your notes, you're just right. anything that shows that, hey, we asked a question about this or we made a choice for this reason. We followed up here or we followed up with the technical people, you know, mm-hmm. anything that shows that you're behaving reasonably can help to avoid most of the common restatement and negligence lawsuits. Great. Well, thank you very much. This was really interesting. Um, Hopefully it saves someone some legal trouble down the road. (laughs) So I really appreciate your insight and uh, have a great day. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye.